0: Hey, it's Craig Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Really appreciate you listening. It's Thursday, April 7th. we got a great chatterbox. Uh, Alan Carter from the Alan Carter Radio Program and Sabrina Nanji from QPObserver.com. We talk about the federal budget, but also where we're at in the province. A lot of... Eh, Some pressure on the provincial government with regard to restrictions. So we dive into that a little bit. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star on the show. And we talk about wastewater. A lot of people talk about this story. I I understand that. But why it has not been used before to generate generate guesses or estimates on cases. Really important stuff from the CDC. Really important stuff from a wastewater engineer. uh, And her plea to not use it for that. We'll let you hear that audio on the way. Toronto Today starts now. Should unvaccinated kids be sent home regardless of their health, regardless of whether they have symptoms or not? Obviously, COVID positive kids should be sent home. I had a long conversation with a bunch of parents on Tuesday night in the Peterborough area. And uh, wonder of wonders, the Peterborough Medical Officer of Health, uh, Dr. Thomas Piggott, had a news conference yesterday. So um, he sent letters to families of two schools recommending any student or staff not fully vaccinated stay home for a period of five days. Um, I'm not sure that that that's something that you're allowed to do. Pigot wouldn't identify the schools and you think, okay, are we, are we in the trust tree? Are we in the, under the guise of full disclosure? I understand that you wouldn't identify students or teachers who are out with COVID. I understand also though, that um, the bridge that you can't cross is sending unvaccinated kids home and keeping vaccinated kids there. And who is, who's Thomas Piggott to define Who's fully vaccinated and who isn't. This is exactly what we tried to avoid when we talked about schools and kids. So I want to go there and play you a couple cuts from Thomas Piggott yesterday. Um, and then I want to play you a really important cut about wastewater, um, because it's in the news, quite obviously. And uh and I think we're I think we've gone a little too far with this. This is my opinion. Nobody has to again, I can only control what what I control um in terms of how I feel. You can feel differently. That's all good, man. Absolutely. But uh, unvaccinated students being told to stay home for five days. The province is aware of this, and, uh, and I think this is really interesting. So they send letters to two schools in Peterborough recommending unvaxxed students stay home for five days. Dr. Pickett says, well, that's because spread of the virus in these schools is very high. He says that's going to protect other students and staff by slowing the spread of COVID-19. Now, now, in a highly transmissible variant era, BA2. And you could make the case with Omicron. That might have been true in the Delta era, Alpha era, prior to that. Um, all that might have been true. I think there's some debate about whether or not um, spread is slowed between fully vaccinated people or two, three dose people and and unvaccinated people uh, right now. You may have noticed that many of the mandates, once they went away, were around unvaccinated people. Now, those of us who've had their three shots. um, You can be worried about that. You have brilliant masks you could wear if that's the case. You have vaccines that you have taken or could take if you're concerned about severity of illness or something far worse than that. But I don't know what you have outside of that to control spread. And I do not believe that you can send unvaccinated kids home and keep fully vaccinated kids there if both are asymptomatic. Pickett explains why he's sending letters home to the two schools, but I think there's something interesting in what he says here.
1: Since last week
0: alone, we've seen seven of our schools that have exceeded absenteeism thresholds in a concerning way. And looking into the testing, we have sent letters home to two schools now recommending that for any student staff that are not fully vaccinated – That students stay home for a period of five days. This is both to protect from onwards transmission because people who are fully vaccinated will have less risk of onwards transmission, and it is also to protect them, to protect the student that has not yet had the chance to have the vaccine and is not themselves protected. Okay, they all have had the chance to have the vaccine, but it ends up being a parental decision, and this is where we get into tough territory here. They're hard conversations. They're honest conversations, and I don't doubt that he's attempting to limit spread in his community but by doing so and we can argue about whether it that's even possible at this point in time we can argue about risk benefit decisions um in terms of what we do and what we don't do we're we're to the point right now where i think a lot of things are happening and all the boxes check are we making our own individual risk assessment? yes we are has the provincial government quote unquote left us alone to do that yes they have Should they be giving more guidance? Should they should Kieran Moore? Should Dr. Kieran Moore be more present than he's been? Yes, yes. And yes, you got no complaint. No question for me on that. Should there have been more of a push for a third shot for vulnerable people? Yes, yes, yes. You got absolutely all that is true. But here's where the struggle goes. And it's about what a kid's right is and what that little boy or girl is allowed to do. And what they are judged by doing is bad enough. There's so many things that have been bad enough for kids. So many things that I wish we had done differently. Um, every single one of us. I'll raise my hand and I'll absolutely say that after twenty six months. It'd be great if some of the really prominent, you know, doctors that are kind of that kind of like to give the shots and like to like to bully a little bit and 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 on, on Twitter and whatnot, it'd be nice if they said what they got wrong. It'd be nice if they made themselves accountable, but I can't make somebody else do it. You can only control what you can control. Dr. Pigott tweeted this out two days ago. Significant illness in schools due to COVID-19 is being detected here this week. We are continuing to dismiss children who are not fully vaccinated. Well, you can't do that. You can't send home not fully vaccinated kids. The kids didn't have a choice potentially as to whether to get vaccinated or not. I spoke to a father two nights ago, eight-year-old son. The whole family had COVID. The parents are three shots in. The kids were not vaccinated. That was their call. You can have your judgment. You can have your opinion about it. That's what makes the world go around. Opinions. Fantastic. You can't send a kid home because he isn't vaccinated. He or she didn't have a choice. We tried to tell some of these politicians this. You can't mandate this new vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds and say, you can go to school, but you can't. Because guess who suffers? The kid that can't make that particular choice. Pigot writes, "If your children haven't been vaccinated, it's not too late to catch up." I strongly recommend all continue to be max, uh, to be uh, to be, to wear masks. Okay, you can make that recommendation, but you can't. You can dismiss symptomatic kids. You can send sick kids home. You can send kids with positive cases home. You can send kids home that you know documented have have a sibling in that household who have a positive case. You can't be sending kids home cuz they're not vaccinated. And somebody needs to step in here and stop this person from doing just that. And if I were the if I were the medical officer of health, I know, right? <laughs> you don't want that. But you'd want, I'd want to be crystal clear. I'd want to make sure that the communication was right. You can't even ask if they're vaccinated or not. We're not allowed to ask teachers. Oh my gosh, I heard that all summer. Hey, do students have a right to know? Gosh, I asked Karen, uh, Karen Littlewood this in January when she was kind of stomping her feet about, well, we shouldn't open schools on January 17th. We're not ready yet. We need a couple more weeks. Do you need a couple more weeks after those couple more weeks? I don't know. Um, but she, I I said, don't kids and parents have a right to know if they have an unvaccinated teacher? Well, I mean, it's just, I'm not sure that, that, you know, the, you, come on, come on. You can't have it both ways here. If, if Piggott, by the way, said cases are high, we're sending kids home with positive tests in their home. I got it. I got it. But this guy's pretty brash suggesting that it's happening. You can't make kids go home from public education because they don't have a COVID vaccine you can't do it and i asked parents to ask me what's going on there and they said yes this is happening it's a problem let me get to the wastewater issue big story right Pete, peter uni steps up yesterday i know that <laughs> i know there's people saying i thought he retired i know I, it's it, you remember what about bob richard Dreyfus can't get rid of bill murray he can't get rid of him he shows up at anniversary parties he's in the town he's uh, he's you know he's he's teaching a little little uh, the little kid how to swim ziggy uh, he can't get rid of Bill Murray. That's how I feel in this province right now. So, um, regardless of all that, let's let's put let's put it down to raw facts. Wastewater comes out yesterday and tells uh, Cynthia Mulligan, fantastic journalist, no doubt about it. Tells Cynthia Mulligan, you know what I think? I think the wastewater tells me there's 100 to 120,000 cases in Ontario daily, daily happening in a province of 14 million people. Okay. Well, Uni also estimated there were nearly 3.8 million people, almost 4 million people that got Omicron, and he estimated that on February 24th, 40 plus days ago. Okay, he might be right about that. Omicron was everywhere. I'm not going to dispute those facts. And by the way, you've heard me back, Peter Uni, when he's been right about things. He said we shouldn't close outdoor activity. You're damn right we shouldn't have last May. He said the third wave is going to be worse than the government thinks it is. Damn right. He was right about that. So I've been really consistent on this person. Really consistent. But guess what? I don't just parrot everything he says and repeat everything that is right or wrong. He was wrong about Omicron severity. Where's the explanation about that? He was wrong about Delta crushing us in September and October. He's on a bit of a a bit of a streak here. You know, you see that team in the box in in the uh, standings in the paper, you know, 3L, L3, L5. That means they've lost a bunch of games in a row. That's this guy right now. Okay, so he brings that up about wastewater and we go, oh, my gosh, what do we do? Should we shut things down? Are we locking back up again? Let me document this. The CDC strongly discourages any firm estimate of covid cases via wastewater data. It, quote, isn't a credible primary source. And I've heard this from epidemiologists. We were talking about wastewater on this radio station, on this show back in the fall of 2020. It is, quote, not possible to reliably and accurately predict the number of infected individuals in a community based on wastewater testing. Listen to this wastewater engineer. Germany, by the way, or rather uh, the Netherlands, absolutely wrote the book on uh, wastewater and where they could detect cases and where they couldn't. But here's the question on ITV just two weeks ago, whether you or not you can trace cases based on wastewater. I mean, it's a wastewater engineer. What does she know? Here's the clip. Can the data also be used to estimate the the actual number of infected people?
2: Um, from what we've done, I would be hesitant to do that. I know colleagues have tried that, but in, in that sense, I, I would say we don't know enough uh, from the from the medical side how many uh, or how or how much virus one person actually excretes. And um, I would I wouldn't do that, but I'm a wastewater engineer, so.
0: Right. You know if it's there in your community, and that's really helpful. It's been helpful for other diseases before. There have been polio outbreaks in uh, in cities in the last 40, 50 years. I mean, wastewater is not some 21st century technique here. It makes a lot of sense. Check out what people are uh, excreting when they go number one and number two and figure out if disease is there. And they're able to do it with COVID. That's great. I'm for it. And I've been talking about it for a long time, but you can't estimate cases with it. Never. We're the only jurisdiction on planet Earth that's doing it right now. Big paper out in The Lancet in December of 2021, monitoring of community level transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater can identify the presence Mm -hmm. of COVID-19 in the community. Here's the hard part to handle. But methods for estimating the number of infected individuals on the basis of wastewater RNA concentrations are inadequate. Inadequate. We're running with inadequate. When was it okay to run with inadequate? You tell me. 289 975 1640 via text. 289 975 1640. Again, Ontario, yours to discover. That's a great slogan, it's on our license plate. Unique when it comes to COVID? Is that on our next license plate? We're the only people doing this. Inadequate. The big sports occurrence today is uh, the Masters at Augusta, Georgia. I've never been. Um, my dad. I've been to Ryder Cup. I bought a big time price ticket for my dad to go to Ryder Cup with me when it was at Oakland Hills in Michigan. He loves golf, and he's gone down to the Masters for practice rounds before. But I've never gone. I've been to Georgia, and I you see like road signs as to where Augusta is. So it's always sort of might be that bucket list thing. Maybe someday. Today would be quite the day to be there. Tiger Woods will tee off around ten thirty four a.m. And how do we even contextualize this? He's forty six years old now. That in itself—that's the same age Jack Nicholas was when he was 86. And I know he doesn't look as old as Jack Nicholas did. Um, we're just—we we all live a little bit better. We all live a bit longer. But Jack, that was a remarkable thing. He's the oldest ever uh, winner of the Masters at age 46 in the modern era. But Tiger Woods broke both legs in a car crash last February of uh, 2021. He's driving almost, this wasn't any fender benders, driving twice the speed of the limit, going nearly 90 miles an hour on a downhill stretch of road, lost control of the SUV. My big recollection is they they bring the car up on a suspension, like a a Lexus SUV. The the damage is unbelievable. So you're like, well, that's that. He was, you know, a little banged up anyway. He's had spinal fusion. He's had significant injuries to his neck, his back, everything. He's playing in the master's today. I don't even know what to say about it. Maybe our next guest will. Our next guest is a sports medicine physician, medical director for the Center of Health and Sports Medicine uh, in Toronto, and an assistant professor at Department of Family and Community Medicine at U of T. And and for clarity's sake, um, Dr. Howard Winston, when I tell people I've had work done, you, you're who I think of. Even though you were my second surgery, you uh, you fixed a torn meniscus of mine about nine years ago, and I've been, I've been flying since. I still don't eat right. I know not much you can do about that, Dr dr winston how you doing greg i'm really good this is a remarkable story i know you and i have talked about athletes before that have had lower body injuries acl tears um you know big knee problems in, in the basketball and football world i mean we're raving about this because it's any golfer right but the fact that it's the fact that it's tiger woods and he's back 14 months after this how do you put that into context
3: the word that comes to mind is exceptional this is an exceptional, exceptional human being, an exceptional athlete, and it's interesting because when this when this accident occurred, and once the um, the true color of the injuries surfaced, everyone was saying, "That's it, this career's over, career's mm-hmm. over; he'll never golf again." And I, it's funny; I never had that feeling about him. I never had that feeling, but I just it was just one of those. Here's another challenge for an exceptional athlete, and he is going to show us. You know, I can't tell you what it's going to be a year from now, a year and a half, but he will show us. And here we are 14 months later. And um, as uh, Fred Couples said, he looked phenomenal. We- he, did a practice, he did a practice round with Fred Couples on Monday, and he said he looked
0: phenomenal. So the, the the for people who don't follow, and again, who doesn't know who he is? Everybody does. But he won the 2008 U.S. Open after a twice fractured left leg. He was coming back from that. He's had back problems nearly wipe out his career. So... There have been loads of surgeries. This was not a significantly healthy person, Doctor Winston, until the accident, which made I thought we'd seen everything right in 2019. He's had broken legs, painkiller addiction, crushed ankles, bad neck, and he won the 2019 Masters. And we're like, "There's the cherry on top of the career," and he's back today.
3: Does the name Evil can Evil mean anything to you?
0: <laughs> As a really little kid, thinking, "Yeah, there's a guy in a white suit, and he's gonna." Jump a motorcycle over like a bunch of crocodiles or something. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yes, but but, but don't, <laughs> don't forget, he had he had a microdiscectomy in his back in December of 2020, before this accident in February 2021. You know, people didn't even talk about that. I mean, he was recovering from that. You know, and here he goes and he suffers. You know, these like what should be career-ending injuries. But he's an exceptional person. The one thing he didn't injure was his heart. He has the hugest mm-hmm. heart. I mean, like. For an athlete, I mean, let's talk about the actual injury. He had a comminuted compound fracture of his right leg, which means multiple fragments of bone, broke through the skin, risk of infection, risk of loss of blood flow, um, and therefore loss of potential limb, and the potential for compression syndrome. Okay, Mm -hmm. So he had surgery to reverse all these. Now, the incredible thing is he has a, a metal rod, that's a you know, full-length leg that's put through his uh, his tibia and his right leg, which allows for such a faster recovery. I mean, this was invented about uh, 90 years ago or so during wartime. You know, they're trying to see how, how can we heal people faster to get them back out uh, onto the uh, onto the field, um, and this rod was invented. And ever since this rod was invented, we can get people weight-bearing so much faster, and the bone heals, and, and the and bone's going to heal very quickly in someone like Tiger. And mm-hmm. The rest is all soft tissue. We don't know the extent of a soft tissue injuries because he also had injuries to his ankle and his foot, etc. But bear in mind, he will recover. The tissues will recover. You know, he can recover his mechanics, his stroke. But it's not to say he doesn't have pain, right? You know, from all of this, particularly when you injure joints, there are bones, but there's also cartilage. And cartilage, unfortunately, is irreparable. So once cartilage is damaged, that's a life of pain and, and, and yeah. on, the, on the road to, you know, arthritic joints, et cetera, et cetera. But, it, you know, everyone has different tolerances to pain. And he's one of those guys, he, he's just determined. He's just determined. He's a, he's a super, superhuman guy. He's exceptional. And I'm sure he'll make the cut.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Howard Winston's our guest, by the way, on Toronto Today, sports medicine physician, medical director for the Center of Health and Sports Medicine sports in basketball. Toronto. Is there a year, Dr. Winston, where um, you, you say – the, the technology is there that allows this to happen again. I know, I think you and I have had a couple of conversations about athlete. You, you take Bobby Orr, right? Archetypical examples. Got just n- never the same knees after age 29. He tried to gut it out in the mid-70s. But, but modern technology might have let Bobby Orr play a lot longer. Can Tiger Woods even be considering playing today, 20 years ago, 30 years ago?
3: Um, I, I think the sophistication of, you know, you hear every athlete, you know, when they accept their their winning trophy, you hear every athlete thank their team. Okay. Well, they didn't really have teams 30 years ago. You no, know, now they have a team. They have a team. They have a, a you know, head physiotherapist. They have a head physician. They have a chiropractor. They have, uh, you know, a psychologist. I mean, they, they have a team of individuals that helps them get to the level that they compete at. So the technology, if you're talking about equipment or if you're talking about surgical equipment, things like that, I don't know how much it's changed in the last thirty years, I and mean, we had these rods thirty years ago as well. But we are so much more uh, scientific about training. We're so much more scientific about eating, and you know what number of calories you should be taking, and what what the calories should be made of. It's much more scientific in that regard. And the you know the first person who I remember in athletics who who really kind of had that team setting was Martina Navratilova.
0: Right. And yeah. She
3: she she was there. She, she was like the beginning, just the beginning of that cutting edge of uh, sophistication and, and scientific academic athletics, and it just you know just blossomed, grew from there. Now every, every athlete has.
0: is it possible? Like Tiger Woods, I know when I covered the Red Wings in Detroit, Steve Eiserman couldn't run. He had an osteotomy. You know exactly what that is. I think I tried to tell you I needed one. You're like, stop, just leave the diagnoses to me. But um, but he had an osteotomy, and Steve would tell me. I can't run, but I can play hockey because I can glide and I can stop. It's remarkably painful. He was banged up in the at the two thousand two Salt Lake Olympics. It's possible Tiger Woods couldn't even go for a jog for say five k, but he can play golf. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, but uh, quite honestly, you say five k. I'm sure he couldn't. He couldn't run five hundred meters really uh, without without pain. And, yeah, and I, and I saw a comment just in the last couple of days about the uh, undulations of course, you know, at Augusta. So it's, it's going to be a real challenge. His, honestly, his greatest challenge this weekend is going to be walking the course. And you know, uh, that you're not allowed, obviously a cart. There's no exception to that. Mm-hmm. There were some contested, uh, you know, uh, challenges to that by Casey Martin.
0: You remember that? Yeah. That's about 30, yeah. 25 years yeah. ago. You're right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he sued, he sued the PJ. Um, in any case, that's going to be his, his biggest challenge. He's going to have pain. And it's mm. difficult for him to walk up the hill, walk down the hill. And that's, you know, stuff that we take for granted. I mean, we we, we do that all the time, but it's going to be difficult for him.
0: Um, last thing, have we redefined? I think this is a fascinating, a deeper, deep dive, and I hope we get to talk about it again. Were we redefining age? And is that about medicine? I'm, I joke earlier, like my Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholas, when I'm watching with my dad, yeah, like 46, like 46, 46 year olds then look like 60 year olds to us now. It's just is how it is. We live better, we we eat better, we we train. All these golfers. We don't. I hate to pick on one guy. We don't see a lot of Craig Stadler's on tour. We see a lot of guys that look like Dustin Johnson and Jordan Spieth. Are we redefining what age is the best? Two of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, right, are Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, as you know, and they're forty-four and thirty-nine, and Ben Roethlisberger was thirty-eight. Are we really redefining who can do what when the, Roger Federer, right? Are we redefining who can do what with age? Like it's almost like we got to blow out every consideration of when you're an older athlete from twenty twenty five years ago.
3: Yeah, I, I think it just comes down to the fact that, that athletes today uh, really consider this a job, and if you want to keep your job, you've got to be at the top level as best you can, and that, and that means you know obviously taking care of yourself. I mean, remember Babe Ruth? I mean, you know, he played a game and then went up for you know five or six beers after the game. This happened for whatever the length of the season was back then. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't happen today. Um, so I think that the uh, the level of seriousness of the athlete and recognizing that, you know, in order for me to, you know, perform in this role on this team for a number of years and try and stay healthy at the same time, you got to take it pretty darn seriously. And so they do in every category, and that's why they have teams.
0: Howard Winston, uh, sports medicine physician and surgeon, and yes, uh, medical director, Center for Health and Sports Medicine in Toronto. You did wonderful work for me. I can't recommend you enough to all my friends, and thank you very much. uh, for. I'm sure I'll come back and see you someday. I'll I'll titanium something, like I'll need something at some point in the next 20. Don't retire is what I'm saying. We we, We don't want that anytime soon.
3: Always a privilege, Greg.
0: Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star columnist, joins us now. I love talking to Bruce. Have you been to Augusta? I forget if you have or not.
1: I have never covered a jo- golf major it's on my list of things I'd like to do but there are a few other things on the list of things I'd like to do but I think Augusta's probably of the majors that's the one you want to go to
0: I know I feel I I feel uncomfortable I remember all the stuff about you know no women members and I think it's uncomfortable I think I there there've been some there's some racial history at that club if people want to google it so I'm all, always like I don't know if I I always felt comfortable saying it was my favorite major. I like the, I like the British. You know, you're not supposed to call it that because you can get up early and it's done by 2 o'clock.
1: Absolutely true. And also the golf course is different every year and crazy every year. And there's those years where they have to punch 200-yard drives <laughs> with like low in the wind so it doesn't go sideways into the ocean. Like, that stuff is great. Augusta is complicated, but so is America. Like, you can't really scratch the surface of America very far right now and not find troublesome history and other problems. So, I mean, Augusta, it always had that. It's still obnoxious, but it's also one of the great sporting events of the sport.
0: You know, I'm glad you said that, because I was just talking earlier. We took some phone calls, and I said this about the States, and you know how long I lived there for. And I think to myself, mm-hmm. okay, regardless of, of all the things that we, you know, wrestle about and, and we're not sure, should we do this, should we do that, America's going to come through 26 months with no better a health care system for um, for their uh, poor and middle class then they had 26 months earlier, like not not for a second. They just ended benefits. That's going to leave a lot of people still struggling. And I'm just like it befuddles me like I always think about Canada. We always think we have our issues. We won the, the freaking lottery compared to our neighbors. If you are if you're worried about health care, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, although I, I think I said this to you before, one of the big dangers in this country is when we compare ourselves to the states. If that's the bar, right? If we need to right. better than the United States, and there's a lot of things the United States does really well, and there's an enormous amount of that society which is inextricably broken. Like, the fact that, like, they're, what they've done with COVID is what they kind of do with gun deaths. They just accept mm-hmm. it as a part, it's, a, it's a, the cost of doing business, right? It's just something that happens to other people. And there's all the inequality there, the political climate there, which is right now terrifying, which I think is leaking up here to a degree, you saw that with the convoy. Um, there is there's a lot of being strapped to the United States. I think made our pandemic more difficult because we had an enormous amount. Of, like a lot, of, most mm. of our imported cases in the first wave came to the United States. Right, Canadians went down there and came back. And also, it's just dangerous for us as a country to be strapped to that country, given what I think it's lo- maybe short and long term future. Maybe.
0: Yeah, it's it's yeah. Um... OK, so you are right about Dr. Kieran Moore. I think you're right on the money. W- w- he needs to talk. I think I think being present's important. I can't sit here and go, where's Justin Trudeau for the three days of the Freedom Convoy w- and not say that about Kieran Moore or say it about Doug Ford last spring when he kind of popped up at his his mom's house and he was talking about well i'm sorry and then we didn't hear from him again but what are you sorry about what's going on what's 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 with all this so he needs to be places um the headline of your column i know you don't write the headlines documents um covid's running rampant but that's where we might have a have a you know fork in the road i don't know what we can do to stop it running rampant right now it is everywhere there's no question about it
1: it's not so much stopping it it's slowing it down it's the same thing we did in january if you remember omicron was flying in january and we did not according to every estimate i've seen we did not infect so many people that it stopped on its own people's behavior changed and so we slowed that wave down we still had a ton of people get infected but it did get slowed down because of public health intervention because we still had masking because we had some other stuff like that's one of the dumbest arguments i've been getting lately is well how could masks work if they didn't stop the first five waves of the pandemic well how can a seatbelt work if like you've been never been in an accident it's It doesn't make any sense to argue that way. But in terms of what we could do right now, reinstitute a mask mandate right now. And that's like, that's the bare minimum of what we could do. But people need to, if you want to slow this thing down, you need to change people's behavior. And I'm not sure how you can do that. That's a tough
0: genie to put back in the bottle now, isn't it?
1: And that's the thing is once they did this, once they took the masks off for people and basically said, go on with your life, we're just going to go ahead and ignore this. The problem is the virus doesn't really care if you ignore it. In fact, it it works way better for the virus. And right now there is probably as much or more COVID circulating in Ontario as there has ever been.
0: I agree
1: in the pandemic. And for a lot of people, that'll be fine because you'll wind up with something that won't take you to the hospital. But the more people get sick, the faster if we infect an enormous number of people, and we're talking, if the estimates of Peter uni are right, um, We're talking in the next two weeks, probably infecting three or four million Ontarians. That's going to send a whole bunch of people to hospital at the same time. We don't know how many. We don't know how many die. We don't know how many are vulnerable because there's a huge amount of uncertainty right now. But that's basically what we're looking at right now in the next two weeks of infection, probably, and three weeks of hospitalization climb after that.
0: So a question on that, but I I want to know what what the purpose. I think this is a fair question. What is the purpose of slowing it down? I'm not saying let's lay down and let us let it take it, let us let it let us get taken at once. What's the end game? What's the purpose of a slowdown? Why does it matter if I get it in January or I get it in March or I get it in May or I get it in July? Do you do you think you do you think you and me can avoid getting it?
1: See, here's the thing. This is where you and I look at this differently. It's not about when you get it. It's not about when I get it. It is for us, but societally it isn't what it is. It's like if you're buying a house, there's going to be a lot of talk about housing today, right? Yeah. In terms yeah. of the federal budget, there's a lot of talk about housing. Every conversation you have, do you want to pay for the entire house at the start or do you want down payments, right? You want a mortgage. That's what this is, is you slow down the payments, which means instead of – so in our last wave, we put 4,000 people into hospital at the same time. That put a fairly large strain on the system. It impacted surgeries. It impacted all kinds of other hospital things, which they're still digging out from under. So right now, it's on the table we could get back to that. Like, if we infect enough people fast enough, we could match the hospitalization peak of the last Omicron wave, despite the fact that we knew more about it and we actually had more advantages now than we did then. So would you rather have 4,000 people in the hospital at once or 3,000 and have those extra 1,000 spots? for someone else who needs it. Because the other thing, I was talking to a doctor yesterday, what's happening is a ton of people are coming in with the effects of delayed healthcare over the last six months, over the last year, over the last two years. Because we COVID put this bomb in the middle of our healthcare system. And so now you're getting the effects of that. And so what we have is there are there are lots and lots of people going to right. the hospital. So but- the first space you have in the hospital over time, if you and I wait to get it, until june and the hospital has emptied out then it's easier for the hospital and it's better for us
0: but our reaction to covid delayed a lot of those surgeries our reaction and i'm not saying at some point we should have had a laser focus i think we'd make the case with schools you and i have six combined children we want them in school so it's one thing to hold on say second,
1: wh- hold on a second though our <laughs> covid Delayed surgeries. Can you explain that to me? Because that's an argument that people sometimes make.
0: Okay, our reaction—it shut down doctors' offices. Okay, doctors wouldn't wouldn't come back and see patients in person. Well, that's a really difficult thing. There's some things I can yeah. do over Zoom with a doctor, but people have delayed screening. They've been made to think I shouldn't go there. There might be COVID there. Doctors themselves are talking about treating patients and 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 bragging about it on Twitter. How they don't want to deal. The one in Ottawa, especially, she doesn't want to see sick patients. She's blaming sick patients for giving her COVID. But enough on her so we have delayed a lot of the processes of a normal healthcare system because of fears about covid and yes yeah, some of the realities of who's in hospital and who isn't we fired a bunch yeah, of staff as well i mean we could yeah, use that staff right no. now
1: what what you're talking about when you go back is is that when when we canceled surgeries because there was too much covid in the hospital when family doctors didn't do uh basically screenings and stuff like that part of that was a worry about the virus which for the first three waves was fairly fair because you got to remember that doctors also deal with the most vulnerable patients in society a doctor will deal with older people with immunocompromised people right that's a problem The, the impacts of the medical system are largely because there was too much covid it wasn't because we kept you and I from going to a restaurant. The school thing is a separate thing. School thing is something that we should have prioritized societally, but we prioritized other things instead in terms of business. That was a decision this province made, and a lot of provinces made. Um, but in terms of uh, the interruption of the healthcare system, it's a huge issue. And you're right that there was there was fear of COVID that caused an, a. a a problem within the system. But that wasn't it. It's that there was a ton of COVID and it killed a ton of people and it killed a lot of the most vulnerable in society who doctors interact with on a regular basis.
0: I guess the biggest question, and uh, I know we're tight for time, is what makes things different six months from now we don't know so that means the fact we don't know we don't have hard evidence I, I can i feel like after 26 months we can only do things based on hard evidence and you're right there are risk mitigation tactics that work and what what are what my 78 year old parents should do should be different than what our six kids should do those should be different tactics and different levels of risk depending on the circumstances
1: but what you're doing, like what you're talking about there in six months, like that's a whole nother conversation. I honestly don't know what it looks like in six months. I think we're very possibly in for a bad fall wave, but I don't know that. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, honest I know, fall I, I, fall I know. Free. So waning immunity, waning vaccination where we don't have a, a stable infrastructure to make sure that people get, keep getting vaccinated. And by the way, a lot of the people who were fighting for better policy all the way during the pandemic won't be there by the time we get there. So, okay. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like the right now, We have to deal with the wave right now. And what's probably going to happen is the province is just going to let this roll. I honestly think that's what they're going to do. Like if, if, if we know, if we don't know how many people have been infected, but it's possible this only goes for another two weeks and then peaks. But the thing with that is then hospitals will peak after that. And we've got to deal with that right now. So if the province was smart, Mm -hmm. they would have put masks back on a week ago. If they were really smart, they wouldn't have taken them off. But people across the country, there was a weird group think with, a bunch of it's CMOHs where they basically said, we're going to try to ignore the virus and hope that people listen to us. At this point of the pandemic, that was a reckless decision.
0: But why would, they do, why would Eileen DeVille do all the right things for 25 months? And then? And, and why, why would every other okay, Western democracy in Europe yeah. and every state in the U.S., red, blue, green, yellow, whatever, do the same thing?
1: The problem you get with medical officers of health right now is that they don't really have this, the clean power to do this. Because, and this is the biggest one, there's a bunch of other things, but if they reinstitute, if Eileen or anybody reinstitutes a mask mandate tomorrow, they cannot mandate Mm. that businesses enforce it. They have to enforce it with public health like personnel, right? And do you think that's going to work? No chance. No chance. No No chance. chance Any PHU in the province, the only people who can do this is the province on a provincial level. The MOHs, mm. there are MOHs who clearly want to reinstitute mask mandates. But they know that there's no point in doing so because it'll be ineffective.
0: Yeah. Gotta leave it there, man. Thanks for the chat. See you, Brady. Uh, so, you know, Elon Musk bought into Twitter, and one of the, but we like having this, this works out perfectly because we love having our next guest on anyway. She's brilliant. She's innovative. She's ahead of the curve. And I thought it was the best thing I read about uh, Elon Musk buying into Twitter almost to the tune of 10%. Uh, she is uh, the great Amber Mack. You can check out her website at ambermack.com. You don't want to know about last night, do you? Good
4: morning. Oh hi. How are you? (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't know who you were talking to.
0: um, You know, gym Hot Tub. You just sitting there. You're you're trying to you know just cool off after a workout. Life's really hard, right? it's 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 I I got a lot of unsafe spaces, and these two dudes brought this like phone in and just started blasting a tune, and I'm like, no, this is a community. You would never have that in the sauna. So why's the hot tub okay? I didn't get it.
4: It's okay. I usually uh, pause when someone asks me that question.
0: <laughs> uh huh. Exactly. Exactly. um I loved what you wrote about uh, I- Elon Musk. I I I like that you you know. I-, I think we defend our ability on Twitter to and our our right basically to engage, to learn, to uh, have fun, to have a debate. Um. But I- but you write this. I'm certainly concerned about how the power of a free speech absolutist with infinite privilege could lead it to being an unsafe place for everyday people and so many people. I Saw forwarded what you said to me. I read it anyway, but um, you, you like it, you're preaching to the choir here for a lot of folks.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, oftentimes uh, when we think about free speech, we have a kind of a muddy definition about what that means. Uh, for starters, we don't have that in Canada. It's called freedom of expression, mm-hmm. and um, it's subject to a, a bunch of limits. And especially when it comes to these private enterprises like Twitter and Facebook, uh, these are platforms where they get to decide their rules of engagement. So I think at the end of the day, I'm a little bit concerned in terms of uh, a tech billionaire such as Elon Musk paying uh, reportedly almost $3 billion for this almost 10% stake, as you mentioned, because he is doing this, uh, apparently based on what he's tweeting, because he believes we need a platform for free speech. Uh, there are many problems with that.
0: <laughs> Has he been, would you classify him as, as having been a bit of a uh, a bully on Twitter? Would you say, is that is bully a fair term? They're my words. So if you say, nah, nah I wouldn't go quite that far, that's okay?
4: Oh, no, I, I would definitely go that far. I, I think, you know, when I wrote this uh, in my newsletter, I called him a schoolyard bully because mm-hmm. uh, that's a lot of what we're seeing from him. And if we think back, you know, it doesn't take too long to do a, a quick search. Uh, we know that when there was that uh, cave rescue of those uh, children, he called one of those re- the rescuers a, a pedo guy. Um, He's shared transphobic memes. He's called a buzzfeed reporter who he doesn't know, a child rapist. He's called our prime minister or compared him to Adolf Hitler. I mean the list goes on and on and he eventually removes those tweets. Is this the person that you think is a guiding light in our our social media future? My answer would be a hard and fast no.
0: Yeah, you describe it, you said it should not come with a golden ticket to behave like a schoolyard bully. And uh and that's the problem. Like money can buy a lot of things. It sure can buy influence, it sure can buy power. And for something that for so far is free, something that doesn't even have advertisements, it's uh, and and that promotes and allows freedom of expression. Um, it's changed a lot. Look, the the innocence of the platform has certainly changed a lot since the first couple of years. A lot of us were on it, but it's uh, we're, we're getting into some murky territory here.
4: We really are. And, and you know, the question I would love to uh, ask uh, whether it's Elon Musk or, or other people who are saying, "Hey, we want uh, speech to be freer on this platform," is. Uh, what does that mean? And what I mean by that is, you know, we've seen it. We're on Twitter all the time. It's really difficult to get kicked off Twitter. I have friends who've had uh, death threats. Um, we've seen people who have, uh, you know, called a number of people names uh, and, and you know, in many ways, they're libelous for those uh, actions. It's not. Uh, an easy thing to get kicked off Twitter in the first place, so what is it that you are not free to say? I mean, that would be my question because you can report something thousands of times and the person keeps showing up.
0: You do wonder what the like it the end game to me, amber is and i i like I just this sounds so obvious to me, and yet. What's the incentive for Twitter to do it unless all of us are going to walk away on mass is you back it with some form of of a credit card that validates your ID. So when there is a threat, when there is a legitimate complaint, mm. maybe there's I'm sure there's illegitimate complaints. There's people. Well, you know, he bullied me. No, he just disagreed with you when there are patented violations of speech and threats and things that are. Are terrible. Um, you, you you double back. You've got a credit, but the anonymity, the idea that people can just create another account within a minute and a half, it's not great. It it, it has no semblance of accountability for these kind of actions that really have real life consequences.
4: Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. And also, I would argue that in some cases, Twitter is slow to act on some of the issues um, that uh, occur on the platform. So, for example, if you're in the U.S. and you see something that is misinformation or disinformation, There is actually an option when you go in to report a tweet to say that, hey, this contains misinformation or disinformation that could be harmful. In Canada, for example, we don't even have that. So let's say that someone goes and says something totally ridiculous um, about vaccines or about a political leader that that is just untrue. Your options when you're reporting, and I think this is an important part of the uh, issue we have here in Canada, are to say, "Okay, this is Um, hate speech. Um, This is uh, someone impersonating someone else. And the the list goes on. But they don't really encapsulate the the true issues that are taking place in terms of people being allowed to say pretty much whatever they want. And that gets amplified. So let's let's consider that second part of the conversation. It's the amplification on Mm -hmm. some of these social platforms that leads to so many issues in our society.
0: Last thing for you, Amber, there was an NBC News report yesterday, and I'll read you the headline. Instagram, quote, systemically fails, uh, end quote, to protect high profile women from the epidemic of misogynistic abuse through direct messages, a study suggests. And it's one thing for people of our generation. Uh, we remember a world without the Internet. We sure do remember a a, a world without social media. Um but our kids don't, and it is it is a struggle. Like like and we see pro athlete, we see Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles. Yeah. And some of their struggle is to be honest, someone's gotta take the phone away from them. They do. They're like someone's gotta intervene and say, This is too much. Don't search your own name. Don't don't look at what people are saying after you finish a match or a, or or pull out of the Olympics. But it's they're hooked in like the the, the the needles in the veins for a lot of our, our younger generation that, that you and I can walk away and we can use it for work and we can leave it for a few days. They struggle with it.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I will just sort of leave you uh, with this question and something to think about. Um, think about women, for example, uh, being on these social platforms and how much in our society it's important that women uh, rise to uh, positions in politics and sports and media and the list goes on and on. If those women feel as though they are silenced and these places are not safe places, all of a sudden we have a society that is going to continue to fight with the goal of equality. And to me, this is where the real issue lies and there's no immediate answer and we have poor leadership. And that's just a disastrous outcome.
0: And we want, look, you and I have seen this through the pandemic. You and I have talked about the pandemic, talked about the importance of schools. We need our best and brightest to want to go into politics. And it's harder than ever. You go under more scrutiny than ever. Your garbage and, and your baskets looks through more than ever. And there's more ways to do it. So if someone, if you say, well, you know, to be an MP, to run, you got to get on social media and get out and then when you do if it's just too painful you're going to lose good people they'll just they'll stay private they'll stay in the private sector and and we need the best people to be our politicians right now
4: exactly and it's that silencing that happens because of all the abuse that that trickles over into our real lives this isn't just an online problem it's a problem that also exists online in our society and it's just growing and growing like a snowball down a hill
0: well on that note um, what's for lunch today? Let's. Have- <laughs> what's the song? What's the song in the uh, in the hot tub gym for the men? To I'll will t- let you know tomorrow. It's great to have you on. You can go to ambermack.com uh, and read more for there. I, I just I thought you just put it so brilliantly and concisely about what this means uh, with Elon Musk joining on, and it's it's something to keep an eye on. Thank you so much for making the time for our audience. I love having you here. Hey, thanks for having me. You got it. Big day in Ottawa. Uh, We know that the province uh, was meant to table a budget. They did not. It's been tricky with COVID, okay? It's been tricky for many, many reasons, but we are 26 months in, and uh, big news. And this is also a budget that follows, what are we, three weeks on the heels of the deal uh, between the Liberals and the NDP, and that factors in as well. Very pleased to welcome on Senior Political Reporter for Global News. I'm always in the car and I hear her chatting politics with Kelly Catrera as well. And I always enjoy those conversations uh, on Friday morning, usually at 945. Amanda Connolly joins us right now in Toronto. Big day, Amanda. Thank you very much for, uh, for fitting in our show and, and making time for our audience.
2: Very big day. It's great to be here.
0: I mentioned that, and, and it's uh, the Liberals and NDP. Um, we might have made different predictions, if you will, um, which is sometimes a fool's game. But five, six weeks ago, we might have made different predictions about a federal budget before we knew about this, uh, quote unquote, alliance between, uh, uh, excuse me, Justin Trudeau and Jugmeet Singh.
2: Yeah, you know, this is going to be a really tricky one for them to balance. And I I heard this from, you know, economists and experts I was speaking to yesterday. Um, they are people, of course, who are paid to think about this stuff, effectively saying the Liberals have a really tough line to walk here. They have Mm -hmm. to balance both all of the promises that you mentioned there that come up under the deal with the NDP, particularly things like dental care. Also support for the rising cost of living, which is just tremendous right now for so many Canadians who who are really struggling. And also the, the really hard reality that the world that we're living in right now is really, really volatile. It's very uncertain. There has to be a plan to build in saving space to that budget to make sure that the next time there is a crisis, Canada is actually able to respond to that as well.
0: I've seen headlines suggesting as well that there's there's almost a response. Does Canada increase spending on its military? Uh, the military has been in the have, has been in the news a ton in the last eighteen months, not for the best of reasons. Because there have been personnel scandals, there have been terrible things happen, uh, many of which are are coming to light, many of which uh, in many of which justice is being served. But a lot of people are wondering whether Russia's invasion in, into Ukraine us getting questioned about our commitment to NATO. I've heard you speak about this before. There might be an increase, maybe a more notable increase than there might have been a few months ago on our military.
2: Mhm this is a really big question and certainly one that I am I'm looking really looking at really closely today um defense spending is is really the big question mark here we've heard kind of hints and indications from the government that they are open to maybe exploring spending more and again this is in the context that there is a scheduled increase over what the over that? the coming years there has been increasing funds since 2017 from the government they're kind of in the midst of this bigger ramp up but additional spending on top of that is what we're really looking at here to get closer to that NATO 2% target. We currently spend about 1.4% just under that of our GDP on defense. There is a lot of pressure right now to get closer to that 2% target, which would be about, you know, between $16 billion and $25 mm. billion, depending kind of where GDP is, is going for the country. So we're not talking about a small amount of money here if they really want to try and up that commitment, but certainly um, all of the stuff that we're talking about really aimed at new equipment for the military, recruiting more people, like you mentioned there. They've had a really hard time recruiting people. They're below their targets mm-hmm. uh, and also modernizing of equipment, particularly up in the Arctic, where, of course, we we know there's going to be a lot of uh, challenges and, and issues to deal with, both with climate change and with Russia.
0: Amanda Connolly is our guest, of course, senior political reporter for Global News Budget today, four o'clock uh, today. And we'll be all over it on 640 Toronto Trim- mm-hmm. and, of course, on Global News at 530 and 6 uh, tonight. And then the national, obviously, uh, at 630. Um, the, the pandemic support, it's such a, um it, it's such an interesting conversation because there's a lot of people that have debated who needs it who still needs it who who never needed it and obviously that's somewhere where the uh, official opposition the uh you know the CPC are going to dig in here and question whether or not there have been profitable corporations that continue to get money when uh for them they're they're it's back to business and back to normal these will be interesting um post game results if you will won't they to see indeed how much how much pandemic support is Ending and how much continues?
2: It will absolutely, and and again, we're kind of in this interesting, of course, inflection point here with the pandemic, where um, there there are still people who are, who are struggling. There are still people mm-hmm. who are having um, difficulties, and 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 industries as well as sectors that that have had a really really hard time. Um, at the same time, we're we're talking a lot more about what is the vision for moving forward, right? And of course, with vision comes new programs, new proposals, things that cost money, and so you're really looking, I think, at, at them trying to strike this balance between moving from that very, um, that kind of shorter term, uh, not necessarily stimulus, but support, uh, for people in sectors that were hurting and and figuring out what the vision is that they want longer term. We saw that with the child care deal uh, deals, plural, I should say, of course, over the past year here. And really, the, the dental care program that we're hearing, um, they've promised with the NDP um, pharma care in, in the future, not necessarily in this budget, but all these things kind of speak to that broader vision that they're looking to, to lay out as the country hopefully is moving out of the COVID pandemic.
0: Housing, big issue, right? I mean, this, these are the conversations I, I think we all have with I, I won't say "quote unquote" real Canadians, but just all of us in general. The cost of housing, where it goes, inflated prices. There's going to be potential for an interest rate uh, rise up uh, uh, next week, and this has been a, such a, a complicated issue. Um, you know, the Liberals potentially banning foreign home buyers, um, and and there's going to be a lot of debate about about that. These are, I mean, we've all still we're all still talking about COVID. We're all horrified by what's happening in Ukraine. But when we get dollars to donuts into subdivisions and whatnot, we really these are the things we talk about. Will my home keep its value or if I want to buy, can I afford it in the next five, 10 years?
2: This is a a really big question. And and again, you know, I'll be frank. I'm a I'm a millennial. I do not own a home. I live in Ottawa, not Toronto. And so I know it's Mm -hmm. even harder for folks who are kind of in the the even bigger cities uh, to do that kind of that kind of thing. But this is something that's on so many people's minds, both, as you mentioned there. In terms of people who are concerned about their home holding its value, and also trying to get a foothold into a really, really tough market right now, and so the Liberals ran hard on this during the campaign. They really put a lot mm-hmm. of effort into their platform around um, housing promises. And again, there's been some mixed reviews from from housing kind of experts and economists about what might actually work. Uh, we of course don't know that until we see things actually roll out, but th- that's a big thing that we're going to be watching for. Today is the, the the promise in the platform, as you mentioned, for potentially a foreign buyers ban. Looking at more support as well to get uh, municipalities and communities to actually build more housing and and free up some of the zoning regulations that um, we've heard again and again have been so restrictive towards getting uh, kind of higher density and and more development, particularly around downtowns and the the inner parts of cities. And so all of this really is kind of the the, the big kind of expectations that have been laid out that the the government has laid out for themselves, really. Um, and and again very very certainly real and serious concerns from so many people both looking to um, plan their futures based on the value of their homes and also people who who really are wanting a shot to get into that same market
0: great insight from senior political reporter for global news amanda Connelly. It's great pleasure having you on i know you've got a busy day long mm-hmm. afternoon into the evening uh and we'll be watching for your report tonight pleasure thank you you got it amanda Connolly. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Back with a live show tomorrow, which you can hear on 640toronto.com and the Radio Player Canada app. Thanks so much for listening.